the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, uh, let's see, this is the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. And it happens to be Income Redistribution Day. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, your taxes are due today. James Blend is producing today's program. Dave King is engineering. Today we'll share a conversation with uh, Jason Koash, author of The Recipe for Biblical Success. And we'll remember Charles Stanley, host of In Touch with Charles Stanley, heard weekdays on our sister station, True Talk 800 a.m., afternoons at 3.30 p.m. He has gone home to be with the Lord. He was 90. We'll talk more about that later in the program. But first, we'll take a look at some of the day's news. Well, don't worry that your tax dollars are being used to pay for wasteful and sometimes immoral things. Most of your tax dollars were actually spent a long time ago and were just playing catch up. But maybe it's uh, that's not um, so comforting on this income redistribution day. But that's effectively the argument that's being made. Uh, to raise the debt ceiling. In October of 21, for example, it was declared raising the debt limit is paying your old debts. It has nothing to do with new spending. uh, PolitiFact even helpfully rated his um, uh, claim mostly true. That was a statement from the president. It is, of course, utterly absurd to argue that today's spending allocations have nothing to do with our national debt, yet that's what passes for political rhetoric and responsible journalism these days. No wonder the national debt is $31.69 trillion and counting. So back to taxes. Today's the deadline for most Americans to file our income tax returns, unless, of course, climate change caused natural disasters that the government used to justify a delay for some folks. And that's not a joke. That's actually true. Well, most people in the bottom 50 percent of earners don't pay federal taxes at all. In fact, thanks to covid relief giveaways, the tax policy center said 61 percent of Americans paid no income taxes in 2020. What's that talk about fair share and who's paying? Well, last year that was down slightly, 57% of households. This year it will be uh, still be more than 40%. If everyone did pay something, you can bet your debt, um, or at least our debt, wouldn't be as high because there would be... Uh, Uh, There would have been a revolt long ago. Well, the same is true for the clever tactic of withholding federal income taxes from paychecks and then sending out refunds. Not only is the expense largely hidden from view, but people get something after filing. Hint, that was an interest-free loan to the government, that refund. If every American had to write a quarterly check to pay taxes, government would would run much differently. Yet most Americans also view income redistribution day through the lens of envy. No matter how much people pay, most people think the other guy didn't pay enough. Indeed, according to the Pew Research Center, the top tax frustrations for Americans are rooted in jealousy. Majorities of Americans continue to be bothered by the feeling, bothered by the feeling that some corporations and wealthy people don't pay their fair share of taxes. And of course, it's a phrase oft repeated. Coming from a lot of people who don't pay any share, that can only mean 
uh, the messaging has uh, thoroughly sunk in. Not surprisingly, a majority of Americans are also not bothered that a majority of Americans pay little or nothing by way of federal taxes. And 56 percent also claim they've already paid more than their fair share. Again, that includes at least some people who pay nothing astoundingly. Well, here's the uh, here's the fact. Corporations don't pay taxes. Their customers do when companies raise prices to cover the expenses in a roundabout way. That means everyone pays something. And here's something else. The top one percent of taxpayers accounted for more income tax paid than the top uh, rather the bottom 90 percent combined. That's what the Tax Foundation reveals. And it's not close. The top 1% of taxpayers paid $723 billion in income taxes, while the bottom 90% paid $450 billion. From, for the top 1%, that's 42% of the taxes on 22% of it, the income. The bottom 50% paid about $39 billion, or about 2.3% in taxes on 10.2% of the income. And still more. As alluded to earlier, millions of American families will pay a bigger tax bill this year because temporary pandemic policies like a greatly increased child tax credit have expired. That will be uh, doubly painful, given that stubbornly uh, Bidenflation has kept Americans stuck with falling real incomes for two full years now. Well, it's being demanded and won $80 billion more for the IRS. And the results of hiring this hiring spree is not going to uh, make Income Redistribution Day any more fun. If you doubt it, well, just $3 billion of that is going for taxpayer services and another nearly $5 billion for system uh, modernization. The rest is essentially for enforcement. Maybe all that enforcement wouldn't be uh, needed if the tax code were a bit simpler. Yet um, they've just succeeded, rather, in allocating this spending because they're convinced most Americans that the other guy is cheating on his taxes and that the wealthy corporate fat cats aren't paying their fair share. Playing on that envy, Biden claims to want to raise taxes only on those making $400,000. In reality, his bill would trickle down to... Well, everyone, at least those who actually pay taxes. Well, they've long used the Marxist strategy of dividing people by income and class. They find ways to pit as many people as possible against the rich and greedy corporations and cast themselves as the far the fair arbiters and defenders of the little guy. They demand income redistribution that favors the biggest pool of voters. And they scream to high heaven about cruel cuts if uh, one party or the other so much as think about slowing the growth rate of the federal spending or about giving giveaways to the rich when tax cuts um, or cuts to tax rates for the people who actually pay them are suggested. When it comes time to raise the debt ceiling, yet again, Democrats dismiss all of that talk of spending and uh, huff about the full faith and credit of the United States as if they had no role in calling it into question. Well, as Pew Research indicates all too well, most Americans uh, fall for at least some of this. That's why there's always more work to be done. We'll conclude with one of Ronald Reagan's many fitting observations about government taxation. Republicans believe every day is the 4th of July. Democrats believe every day is April 15th. Now, that may or may not be an accurate statement. It certainly doesn't apply broadly, but it is an interesting observation on this income redistribution day. So you celebrate? Is there a special dessert for that? I'm not really sure. Maybe we just put on sackcloth and ashes and weep. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, in the dark of night of the last day of the legislative session in Washington state, Senate Democrats passed Senate Bill 5599. It's a breathtaking evisceration of parental rights. The bill would allow the state to legally hide runaway children from their parents if the parents don't consent to their child's gender transition or abortion. No allegation of abuse in the House is required. The bill also applies to children from other states who may travel thousands of miles for such procedures not available to them in their home state, cementing Washington as the sanctuary state for runaway teens. And if that wasn't enough, the bill allocates up to $7.5 million of Washington taxpayers' money to the Office of Homeless Youth Prevention and Protection to provide grants to organizations to pay for gender transition and abortion procedures. All Republicans voted no. All Democrats voted yes in the Washington legislature. Sure, Washington's bill doesn't um, does lip service to providing parents with notification of the whereabouts of their runaway minor children. But there's uh, no such obligation if a compelling reason exists not to do so. And that's the bill's real poison. As described in Section 2 of the bill, a minor's desire to seek protected health care services is a compelling reason not to notify parents of the child's location or to seek parental consent before those health care services are delivered. The definitions of protected health care services are cross-referenced from another Senate bill, 5489, titled the SHIELD Law, and include all gender-affirming treatments, whether medical, surgical, social, behavioral, and all reproductive health care services, including abortion, contraception, and or assisted reproduction in vitro fertilization. Now, together, these bills clear the way for children between the ages of 13 and 17 without their parents' knowledge or consent to stay at shelters that welcome runaways for an indefinite time while they seek these procedures. Again, passed by the Washington State Legislature. Well, Fox News has reached a settlement with Dominion Voting Systems, ending a massive defamation lawsuit in which the voting machine company sought $1.6 billion in damages over false claims the cable news network made in the wake of the 2020 election. Dominion lawyer Justin Nelson said the settlement uh, of the case for $787.5 million dollars. Uh, represents accountability. Today represents a ringing endorsement of truth and democracy, Nelson added. Well, the trial was set to begin with opening statements Tuesday morning. Well, that's today, but was delayed for hours as both sides met to negotiate a settlement. The judge told the jury they could be excused just before 4 p.m. We are pleased to have reached a settlement of our dispute with Dominion Voting System, Fox News said in a statement. We acknowledge the court's ruling finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. This settlement reflects Fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards. The network said it's hopeful the decision to resolve this dispute with Dominion amicably instead of acrimonious. Acrimony of a divisive trial allows the country to move forward from these issues. Dominion attorney Stephen Shackelford told reporters that the money is accountability and we got that today from Fox. Dominion CEO John Hollis, he meanwhile said at a press conference, Fox has admitted to telling lies about Dominion that caused enormous damage to my company, our employees and the customers that we serve. Nothing can ever make up for that, end quote. Well, Dominion had alleged that Fox News staffers and guests defamed the country with false claims that it had switched voters for then President Donald Trump to Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election. The settlement comes after Delaware Superior Court Judge Eric Davis dismissed arguments from Fox News that the statements at issue were opinion and therefore protected by the First Amendment. 
Davis outlined 19 examples of figures, including Lou Dobbs, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, making on-air statements that asserted facts and were therefore not protected under the opinion privilege. The evidence does not support that Fox News Network conducted good faith, disinterested reporting. The judge wrote, like a um, uh, Cianci versus New York pub company, where the Second Circuit held that defendants' failure to reveal facts and plaintiff's side of the story was not disinterested reporting. FNN's failure to uh, Fox News Network, by the way, failure to reveal extensive contradicting evidence from the public sphere and dominion itself indicates its reporting was not disinterested. A United Nations-backed report published last month suggests global leaders normalize pedophilia by allowing children to legally decide to engage in sexual activities with adults. Children to decide to legally engage. I don't see any possibility for exploitation there. Do do you? Wrapped inside a human rights-based analysis on the impact of criminal laws prescribing sexual and reproductive health rights, consensual sexual activity and gender ideology, the International Committee of Jurists and um, UNAIDS and the Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights published the report, which calls for offenses related to sex, drugs, HIV, sexual and reproductive health, homelessness and poverty to be decriminalized. Sexual conduct involving persons below the domestically prescribed minimum age of consent to sex may be consensual, in fact, if not in law, the Geneva-based ICJ wrote. Well, authors of the report also advise lawyers, judges, and law enforcement to consider the rights and capacity of persons under 18 years of age to make decisions about engaging in consensual sexual conduct and their rights to be heard in matters concerning them, end quote. Pursuant to their evolving capacities, so now apparently a 13-year-old is more like a you know 18-year-old, their evolving capacities and progressive autonomy, persons under 18 years of age should participate in decisions affecting them with due regard to their age, maturity, and best interests, and with specific attention to non-discrimination guarantees, end quote. Well, the report took over five years to develop and based its findings on feedback and reviews from jurists, academics, legal practitioners, human rights defenders and various civil society organizations. The results primarily focus on the impact of criminal laws prescribing sexual and reproductive health and rights, consensual sexual activity, gender identity, gender expression, HIV non-disclosure, exposure and transmission, drug use and the possession of drugs for personal use, according to the report. Well, according to the UNAIDS, 20 countries criminalize or otherwise prosecute transgender people. 67 countries still criminalize same-sex sexual activity, with 10 imposing the death penalty for it. 115 countries criminalize drug use. More than 130 criminalize HIV exposure, non-disclosure, and transmission. And over 150 countries criminalize some aspects of prostitution. Now, this doesn't cover Minors being um, absolved of any exploitation that they might be the subject to by an adult. Anyway, they go on. Criminal law is among the harshest of tools at the disposal of the state to exert control over individuals. As such, it ought to be the measure of last resort. However, globally, there is uh, there has been a growing trend towards overcriminalization. That's from the law and policy director of ICJ. Uh, In a news release, we must acknowledge that these laws not only violate human rights, but the fundamental principles of criminal law 
them law themselves. It should be itself. But nonetheless, retired Judge Ed, uh, Edwin Cameron of the Constitutional Court of South Africa argues that criminal law deems some groups protected and others condemned and ostracized. The report also argues that killing unborn children in elective abortions is a human right. So very little regard for the value and the rights of children. So the report argues killing unborn children in elective abortions, elective by the adult, but not by the child, is a human right calling for decriminalizing the procedure and removing punishment for pregnant mothers who consume drugs or alcohol during pregnancy. Abortion must be taken entirely out of the purview of the criminal law, including for having aiding, assisting with or providing an abortion. The report goes on to say officials published the report on the 8th of this month or rather last month in recognition of International Women's Day, alleging a connection between women's rights and the age of sexual consent. So exploiting young girls, this is a value on International Women's Day in which men were given awards for their womanhood. Anyway, women's rights activist Michelle Uriawu of Melbourne, Australia, or her name was very something like that, tweeted that publishing the report on International Women's Day succeeded in gaslighting women everywhere. This hideous UN report seeks to decriminalize sex even between children and minors. Evil, she went on to say. I don't think anything more needs to be said about that. Well, the watchdog group filed Two lawsuits, federal lawsuits against the Biden administration Monday, alleging it had violated federal law by not sharing communications involving Interior Secretary Deb Haaland's daughter. Protect the Public's Trust, a nonprofit watchdog organization, asked a federal court in the lawsuit, one filed against the Department of the Interior and the other filed against the Bureau of Land Management to compel the two agencies to comply with its information requests. Well, the information requests filed under the Freedom of Information Act, which requires the federal government to publicly share certain documents, communications and information with the public, came um, as it revealed that uh, Halland had lobbied federal lawmakers on hot button oil and gas leasing issues over which her mother has oversight. Her daughter's activism and lobbying efforts certainly have the potential to create the perception in the minds of the public that Secretary Halland could be conflicted on issues under her authority. That's a quote from the director, Michael Chamberlain. Further complicating matters is the participation of an organization that claims uh, Halland among its leadership in the protest uh, that turned into a riot at the Interior headquarters. Now, what uh, what comes of this lawsuit remains to be seen, but we'll continue to follow the story if and when it develops. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, a recipe for biblical success and remembering Charles Stanley, who went home to be with the Lord earlier this month, just a few days ago. Ninety years old. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, he tore into President Biden on Monday for his extreme position on the debt ceiling and his first floor speech since suffering a concussion last month. President Biden and his administration are literally on the clock to negotiate a debt ceiling solution with Speaker McCarthy and the Republican majority over in the House. His political advisors apparently think the White House's position should be, listen to this, no talks and no reforms, end quote. 
McConnell spoke from the Senate floor. He went on to say this extreme position is not even holding up in their own party. Even Washington Democrats are breaking ranks from the administration's position of no talks and no reforms. The longtime lawmaker suffered a concussion and a rib fracture last month after tripping and falling at a Washington, D.C. hotel. He was hospitalized for five days of observation and treatment before being discharged to undergo physical therapy. Representative George Santos, the Republican out of New York, rather, the subject of a House Ethics Committee investigation who has admitted to fabricating large parts of his resume, announced his candidacy for re-election on Monday. Good isn't good enough, he said, and I'm not shy about doing what it takes to get the job done, Santos said in a statement. I'm proud to announce my candidacy to run for re-election and continue to serve the people of New York 3. The freshman congressman flipped New York's third congressional district for Republicans last year, partly by selling an inspirational personal backstory to voters that is now, and he now admits, was largely fictitious. Reminds me of the time I was uh, a Green Bay, a Green Beret, rather, uh, fighting in the war right before I was inducted into the Hall of Fame for playing professional baseball. It could be true. Anyway, Representative Katie Porter, a Democrat from California, blamed sexism when pressed by The View hosts on staff mistreatment allegations against her during an interview on Monday, saying bad boss reputations were often attributed to women or people of color. Well, the co-host, Alyssa Farah Griffin, asked about the toxic workplace allegations. An ex-staffer for the California Democrat alleged that the congresswoman made rude and racist comments to staff and said that she ridiculed people for reporting sexual harassment. Sasha Georgades, the Navy veteran and former Wounded Warrior Fellow for Porter, also alleged that she heard the progressive congresswoman use racial slurs when talking to staff. Porter also faced scrutiny after leaked text messages showed her berating her former staffer for catching the coronavirus. So women are also making the allegations, but this is the, the age that we live in. It doesn't matter if your conduct is actually as bad as alleged, if you can run for cover and say, well, it's just sexism or it's just racism, whether or not they're true allegations. And it doesn't matter who's actually levied the uh, the allegations. Many of the her uh, uh, accusers were employees who were also women. But you can get a pass by using that cover. A California Democrat lawmaker is calling for her state to end its ban on government expensed travel to 23 states deemed anti-LGBTQ after initially voting for the legislation in 2016. The ban began in retaliation of North Carolina enacting a law requiring people to use the bathrooms that corresponded with their biological sex. Can you imagine such a thing? Well, since then, the ban has ballooned from just a few states to nearly half the states in the nation. But the ban has been above. Los Angeles Times columnist Nicholas Goldberg wrote in an opinion column. State uh, Senator Tony Atkins said the paper said uh, rather told the paper she's leading the charge to repeal the ban because polarization is not working. Whatever happened to tolerance and making the case? Well, the son of a Canadian pastor faces potential fines and jail time for allegedly violating a new municipal bylaw in Calgary, Alberta. When he preached and read the Bible outside a drag queen story time for children at a public library on Saturday, Nathaniel Paulowski, son of um, Cave of Adulman uh, congregation pastor, Reverend Arthur Paulowski, was detained by for preaching and reading the Bible outside Calgary Public Library, allegedly in violation of a new municipal bylaw that bans protests within 100 meters of the library. We went there just to preach, read the Bible, and just speak, the 23-year-old said of the incident. 
Malowski said he and a friend were speaking to a gathering outside the library when police detained them, moving them away from the crowd and issuing them a ticket. A Catholic health care clinic in Colorado filed a lawsuit on Friday challenging a state law that makes it illegal to offer women a hormone in an attempt to reverse the effects of an abortion pill if a woman regrets her decision to end her pregnancy. The OBGYN practice of Bella Health and Wellness offers progesterone, a commonly prescribed and naturally occurring hormone used to treat pregnant women at risk of miscarriage, whether it occurs naturally or due to the effects of the abortion pill, mifepristone. BHW, again, the name of the Bella Health Wellness, uh, offers progesterone to women who change their minds after taking the abortion pill, citing firsthand evidence where the hormone has successfully reversed the effect of a miscarriage caused by the abortion pill with no negative side effects. Well, Colorado's Democratic Governor Jared Paulus signed the Safe Access to Protected Health Care package. It's a, a package of legislation, signed it into law on Friday, making it illegal for health care clinics like Bella Health to advertise or offer the hormone treatment to women after they have taken the abortion pill. However, it's still legal for health care clinics to offer the hormone to women in other uh, circumstances like a natural miscarriage. So if you have taken the abortion pill, there is no going back uh, in the state of um, Colorado. Uh, this progesterone uh, will not be made available to you under Colorado law. Republican Representative Jim Jordan, chair of the House Judiciary Committee, began his hearing on New York City local crime today as a means of attacking Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, whose case against Donald Trump he's portrayed as a politically motivated stunt. Bragg, a Democrat, has led the investigation into Donald Trump's role in the payment of $130,000 in hush money to Stormy Daniels ahead of the 2016 presidential election. Well, earlier this month, the former president pled not guilty to 34 felony counts for falsifying business records linked to the case. Some Republicans, including Jordan, have seen the probe into Trump as an attempt to interfere with the 2024 presidential election and have questioned the district attorney's use of federal funds for the investigation. Jordan and Trump supporters have focused on Bragg's record on crime as a way of undermining him throughout the probe into Trump. Now keep in mind, the um, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has filed suit against Jordan and others for tampering in this lawsuit. Governor DeSantis strikes back. Florida is planning to clamp down on Disney again. Well, the Florida governor isn't backing down against Disney. The Republican on Monday unveiled new measures against the corporate giant after it tried to kneecap his oversight of its self-governance power in the Sunshine State. What they tried to do is an embarrassment, a senior administration source told The Post. That's the New York Post. The narrative the uh, left is spinning is that Governor DeSantis was outmaneuvered, but this is far from over and he's going to have the last laugh. Ed Morrissey reports that DeSantis and the legislative leader in today's presser plan to go well beyond treating Disney's royal decree as void. The legislature will expand the state-controlled board's authority again and will take further steps to force Disney to operate like every other business in the state of Florida. Three major utility companies implemented equity initiatives charging customers based on income rather than consumption. Concerns arise that high taxes and controversial policies could drive wealthy residents away, negatively impacting the state's economy. The situation calls for change before it's too late to reverse the decline of the once golden state. The new proposal suggests four separate tiers of monthly payments, which are based entirely on income rather than consumption. 
The more you make, the more you'll pay to maintain the grid, regardless of how much energy you actually use. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation donated millions annually to a non-government organization that claims that children are born sexual and should learn about commercial sex work under 10 years of age. The International Planned Parenthood Federation, a separate entity from the U.S. nonprofit, wields significant influence on global sex education. The NGO comprises 120 independent organizations in over 146 countries and has received including its European network, over $80 million from Gates. Other significant donors include the World Health Organization. Toolkit released in 2017 showed an insight into how the NGO teaches sex education to children around the globe. Sexual activity may be part of different types of relationships, including dating, marriage, or commercial sex work, among others. IPPF said about children under 10 years of old, uh, 10 years of age, and how they should be taught, which was first flagged by Nicole Solis of the Independent Women's Forum. We need to take a break, but we'll be back to continue our march through some of the day's headlines and later in the program, a recipe for biblical success and remembering Charles Stanley, who went home to be with the Lord at 90. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show coming up after um, news and traffic in the second hour of today's program, Jason Koash, a recipe for biblical success, and will remember Charles Stanley, host of In Touch with Charles Stanley, that's still heard here on KPDQ's AM cousin, True Talk 800, 3.30 p.m. afternoons. Stanley went home to be with Jesus at 90 years old just a couple of days ago on the 18th of this month. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy proclaimed Monday that Republicans would not allow the government to default on its debts, even as he labored to sell Wall Street on a risky fiscal showdown at the White House that could unleash vast economic turmoil. Speaking at the New York Stock Exchange, he affirmed his party's plan to seize on the rapidly approaching deadline, an urgent need to raise the debt ceiling, which sets how much Washington can borrow to pay its bills to extract spending cuts and other policy concessions from the uh, Biden administration. Debt limit negotiations are an opportunity to examine our nation's finances, McCarthy said, later adding defaulting on our debt is not an option, but neither is future of higher taxes, higher interest rates, more dependency on China and an economy that doesn't work for working Americans. Business leaders and government officials have cautioned that a national debt default would likely induce a worldwide financial crisis. Present increases in the national debt, on the other hand, are unsustainable. The White House vowed Monday that President Biden will veto a bill that would prevent biological males from participating in women's sports should it pass both houses of Congress. The Protection of Women and Girls Sports Act, or H.R. 734, was introduced by Representative Greg Stube, a Republican out of Florida, and is expected to come to a vote on the House floor sometime this week. The administration strongly opposes House passage of Resolution 734, the White House said in a statement. For students nationwide, participating in sports and being part of a team is an important part of growing up, staying engaged in school and learning leadership and life skills. Uh, This bill would deny that access. However, Title IX was designed to protect and promote women and girls in sports, competing against one another where the playing field is, well, level. Dr. Jordan B. Peterson noted the harmful effects of closing nuclear power facilities for ideological purposes 
As Germany shuttered the nation's remaining nuclear plants and Elon Musk strongly advised against the move. Former German Chancellor Angela Merkel, she approved the gradual closure of the nation's nuclear plants following the 2011 nuclear meltdown at Fukushima, Japan, which raised public opposition to the emission-free and relatively safe power generation method. Musk warned that closing nuclear plants in Germany would force the Central European economic behemoth to rely upon coal power, which produces higher emissions and causes more deaths than nuclear power plants over time through increased air pollution. Peterson informed the world's richest man that those who want to close nuclear plants are advocating for an inherently demented policy. But crazy is the point, Peterson told Musk on social media. Anti-nuclear is not a pro-environmental stance. It is an anti-human, anti-industrial stance. So crazy is a feature, not a bug. Peterson has frequently contended that idiot hypothetically environmentalist, uh, environmentalist policies in nations like Germany cause more expensive energy and noted the pseudo-religious ideological elements which some modern climate movements maintain. On a recent episode of HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, Democratic Representative Katie Porter faced backlash for dismissing pro-swimmer Riley Gaines' concerns about transgender athletes participating in women's sports. The debate centered around the Bud Light controversy featuring a transgender male on the can and Gaines tying with uh, Lisa uh, Thomas, a transgender male, allowing to, uh, allowed rather to compete in women's sports and dominating them rather thoroughly. Porter claimed that sporting bodies should determine whether transgender people get to compete against biological males or females, while Piers Morgan defended gains for standing up for women's rights, fairness and equality in sports. Morgan pointed out that Leah Thomas won one of the races in the NC2A championship by 50 seconds against biological females who simply couldn't keep up. Gaines supporters applauded her for using free speech to speak up for every female athlete worldwide. Riley Gaines claps back at Katie Porter, schools her on the fight for women. Seems to me feminism is dead. The U.S. and its allies are grappling with how to pair their economic relationship with China, attempting to limit ties in certain sectors they view as strategic, while preserving a broader trade and investment flows in, with the world's second largest economy. The group of seven advanced democracies are growing concerned about uh, that China, a dominant supplier of many goods and materials, could similarly cut off key exports in the event of a conflict or another pandemic, according to top Western economic officials. They also worry that Western investment and expertise, if left unrestricted, could help develop Beijing's military. The U.S. and its allies have many common values and interests with regard to China. The more they can agree, the stronger they will be. America and its allies don't want Beijing to be able to blackmail them. The answer is to de-risk their exposure to China by diversifying supply chains for strategic goods, but avoid broader decoupling from the People's Republic. A disturbing new report from the UN, uh, the United Nations program on HIV AIDS adds a growing concern about global leaders Pushing to normalize pedophilia, the report, the eight March principles for human rights based approach to criminal law. And President Biden vows to, um, well, I've already mentioned that one. The U.S. Senate says COVID came from the lab. The results of a Senate commission investigation led by former Senator Richard Burr has concluded that the COVID virus most likely originated from a lab leak in Wuhan, China. The report states the predominant, the preponderance of information affirmed the plausibility of a research related incident that was likely unintentional, resulting from failures of biosafety containment. During vaccine related research, the report also throws cold water on the animal origin theory, observing that it lacks 
demonstrable supportive evidence. What was once derided by Dr. Anthony Fauci and much of the mainstream media during the first year of the global pandemic as a fringe conspiracy theory has largely become the scientific consensus. This serves to illustrate why freedom of speech is essential to both finding and preserving the truth. In his effort to coerce more Americans into going electric, Joe Biden's Environmental Protection Agency has taken on an emissions regulation for gas-powered cars and stretched it into applying to non-emission producing electric vehicles to ensure that EV manufacturers' batteries retain their recharge capacity for several years and go tens of thousands of miles without significantly diminishing. The EPA applied to EVs the Clean Air Act's warranty requirement on gas-powered vehicles of eight years to 80,000 miles for major emission control components like catalytic converters. The problem is obvious. EVs don't produce emissions, so the administration is attempting to circumvent the growing problem with EV batteries by playing of a redefinition game in order to hold manufacturers liable under a law that doesn't apply to the product they're manufacturing. The battle of Biden and McCarthy is escalating tit for tat over the debt ceiling deal. House Republicans are expanding the Biden family investigation to six additional kin. Senator Fetterman has returned to the Senate after receiving treatment for depression. The feds have charged two with running a covert police station for China to chase down dissidents in New York City. Elon Musk revealed U.S. and Intel agencies had full access to private Twitter DMs. And a federal appeals court on Monday overturned a California city's first-in-the-nation ban on natural gas hookups in new buildings, saying it violates federal law. The three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals sided with the Coalition of California Restaurants, who argue that the city of Berkeley's ordinance essentially bans gas appliances in violation of a 1975 directive that gives Congress control over restrictions on appliances. The unanimous ruling is a major blow to California Democrats' green energy push and could clear the way for legal challenges to similar bans around the country. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing Dave King Engineering. Coming up, a conversation on a recipe for biblical success. And we'll remember Charles Stanley, host of In Touch with Charles Stanley, Heard weekdays on our sister station, True Talk 800 AM. Stanley, he's gone home to be with the Lord. He was 90 years old. We'll tell you more about that later in the program. Well, Missouri has become the first state to crack down on sex change treatments for adults. And a trans teacher has been removed from school after allegedly threatening to shoot students. Law enforcement seized guns from the teacher's home. Loudoun County schools will make bathrooms co-ed to accommodate trans students. And Disney will uh, host a pride Night after DeSantis announced a bill stripping the entertainment giant of self-granted protections. The eight officers involved in the shooting death of 25-year-old Jalen Walker last summer will not face charges. A special grand jury has decided Walker was shot 46 times by eight Akron police officers after a chase on the 27th of June of last year. The nine-member panel had been reviewing evidence in the case since April 11th, including Walker's autopsy. Officer-worn body cam video from the night of the shooting and testimony. The decision means there will be no criminal charges at the state level, but that does not resolve any civil complaints of wrongful death against the officers, the Attorney General Dave Yost said. Police tried to stop Walker for a minor traffic violation the night he was killed. Prosecutors said Walker led the police on a chase. 
The first shot came from Walker's car, prosecutors said, as seen on a dashboard camera footage from the um, police vehicle. I anticipate terminating the national emergency concerning COVID-19 pandemic on May 11th, President Joe Biden said in February. Uh, The end of COVID emergency means that Title 42, the public health authority, will no longer be used as grounds to immediately expel border crossers who are coming to the country illegally. As the March number suggests, the anticipated end of Title 42 next month may prompt another surge at the nation's border. According to the uh, Border Patrol Agency, uh, 82 individuals of, uh, on the terror watch list were cost, uh, caught rather crossing U.S.-Mexico border so far this year. A particular concern is the growing number of people on that watch list apprehended between ports of entry. And those are just the ones apprehended. CBP says in the first six months of fiscal year 2023, 80 people named in the terrorist screening database have been apprehended between uh, ports of entry at the southwest border and to have been apprehended at the northern border for a total of 82 so far this fiscal year. CBP apprehended a total of 98 people with TSDS uh, records in the fiscal year of 2022, all 98 at the southwestern border. Of course, no one knows how many suspected terrorists evade detection, as so many do. In March, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, they say uh, they encountered 191,899 undocumented migrants at the southwestern border between ports uh, and at ports of entry. That's a 22.39% increase from the 156,000 encounters recorded in February, but a 13.7% decline from uh, encounters in March of 22. Um, The Republican National Committee noted that the foreigners encountered in March makes up the 25th month in a row in encounters that have been above 150,000 at the southwestern border. So there is growing concern. But recent rest rep- uh, press reports rather note that illegal migration also is accelerating at the northern border with Canada. And the March numbers bear that out. In March, CBP encountered 15,774 undocumented migrants at the northern border, the second highest number on record as the chart um, of, from the CBP indicated. 12,000 of those, uh, or 81 percent, were single adults. Nationwide encounters in March, including the northern and southern borders, as well as arrivals by sea, totaled 257,000 people coming to the country. On this day in history, 1775, Paul Revere begins his famous ride from Charlestown to Lexington, Massachusetts, warning colonists that British troops are approaching. The British are coming. 1906, a devastating earthquake strikes San Francisco following followed rather by raging fires. Estimates of the final death toll would range between 3,000 and 6,000. 1934, the first laundromat called the Washateria opens in Fort Worth, Texas. I remember when I was growing up, but we didn't have a washer and dryer when I was very little, uh, going to the laundromat and hanging out. Then I remember what a big deal it was when we got a washer and dryer in our home. It was a big day for the roses. 1938, Superman, a.k.a. the Man of Steel, makes his debut as the first issue of Action Comics, bearing a cover date of June, goes on sale for 10 cents a copy. Oh, what that would be worth today. 1945, famed American war correspondent Ernie Pyle, 44, is killed by Japanese gunfire on a Pacific island off of Okinawa. 
1956, actress Grace Kelly marries Prince Rainier of Monaco in a civil ceremony. 1978, the Senate approves the Panama Canal Treaty, providing for the complete turnover of control of the waterway to Panama on the last day of 1999. 1988, an Israeli court convicts John Demunyek, a retired auto worker from Cleveland, of committing war crimes at the Treblinka death camp in Nazi-occupied Poland. 2014, an avalanche sweeps down a climbing uh, route on Mount Everest, killing 16 Sherpa guides in the deadliest disaster on the world's highest peak. 2019, the much-anticipated report from special counsel Robert Mueller is released and does not find evidence of collusion between the 2016 Trump campaign and Russia. But it does reveal an array of controversial actions by President Trump that were examined as part of the investigation's obstruction inquiry. Well, the U.S. Office of Special Counsel found that Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Bicara violated federal law. Special Counsel Henry Kerner sent a letter to President Biden in which he said that the uh, secretary, the uh, Department of Health and Human Service secretary, violated the Hatch Act by publicly expressing support for California Democrat Senator Alex Padilla, his reelection while appearing in an official capacity as HHS secretary. As explained in the accompanying report, OSC concluded that Secretary Becerra violated the Hatch Act by expressing support for Senator Alex Padilla's reelection. The Hatch Act prohibits federal employees from using their official authority to influence uh, or affect the outcome of an election, he continued. In delivering his speech, Secretary Becerra impermissibly mixed his personal electoral preference with his official remarks. And while federal employees are permitted to express support for candidates when speaking in their personal capacity, the Hatch Act restricts employees from doing so while speaking as a government official. Herner wrote that with a presidential election approaching next year, this report offers an opportunity to deter violations by reminding federal employees at all levels of the Hatch Act's restrictions. Well, coming up in our next couple of segments, a recipe for biblical success. And we'll also remember Charles Stanley. He's been the host of In Touch with Charles Stanley, has been in ministry for 65 years. He's been called home. He's no longer in active duty. Uh, He died on the 18th of um, this month. He was 90. More on that later in the program. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Money, position, title, power, influence. The world sees success as a wild series of badges, accomplishments, accolades, and economic prosperity. We clamor to be noticed, to be loved, to find happiness. Well, the world's measure of success has never been remotely the same as Christianity. In fact, Jesus called us to be of no reputation, to serve and to give freely, to consider outcasts and orphans, And worst of all, to die to self. Well, what kind of formula for success is that? Well, in his book, A Recipe for Biblical Success, pastor and author Jason Koash, he outlines the dichotomy between God's values and worldly values. He methodically identifies the core values that set Bible-believing Christians apart, or at least it should. What is biblical success? 
Well, my guest, Pastor Jason Koash, attended Taylor University, where he played soccer and later graduated from uh, Karen University with a degree in biblical studies and added a master's degree from Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary. He launched Wellspring Church in Toms River, New Jersey, and serves as lead pastor. He is a part-time missionary in Converge, um, Brazil, and helps serve their church planting efforts as well. He joins us today to talk about his book, which is... um, well, pretty significant, a, re- a recipe for biblical success. Pastor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You know, this is such a timely book because there's so much emphasis on success, and it's not always de- defined in a way that um, we as believers necessarily recognize, but the scriptures are very clear about what it's supposed to be. Again, there's a very okay, yeah. there's a marked difference between the world's view of it and what the scriptures have to say. What are some of the biggest differences? Well, I think it's what we are striving for, and so worldly some elements of worldly success isn't isn't wrong, but it's a matter of priorities and focus. And so, uh, yeah, I I mean I see I see biblical success is uh, when God's ways and God's heart become my way and my heart, and striving to be more like Jesus. And uh, when the world says, like you were saying, money, position, power, all of those things, uh, God can grant those things, but never at the expense of Christ likeness. I'm studying the, uh, the the book of Jeremiah, and he was called as a young man and served for 40 years. Uh, his life was a misery by the world's standards, but he was obedient to yeah. the letter, everything that God called him to. What is success as God defines it? I think when we face any kind of challenge or pushback, we tend to think, well, maybe we're a failure or maybe we've fallen short. Or if we're not happy, that somehow means we're not successful. What does God have to say about it? How does he define it? I think it's it's literally doing it his way and seeking him first and, and foremost. And so, uh, you know, think about like, you know, your example and another example in the Old Testament is uh, is Gideon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by, you know, what you're saying, Gideon was a complete failure when he cut his army down to 300. Uh, that is stupid and not practical, but it's what Christ said or what God told him to do. And so in that regards, he was a complete success uh, in, in all areas. Um, so it's, it's doing it God's ways, um, which are not the world's ways. It's why, it's why Joshua marched around a city blowing trumpets as a military uh, <laughs> as strategy, a military strategy uh, because it's simply what Jesus said to do. So, so essentially, <laughs> obedience is what's, what defines success in the life of a believer. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And that's like, that's, so that's the tough thing about the book is everything I describe in there. Um, it's not, it's not sexy by nature, but like, I'm a, I'm a wildly driven person and it's so easy to lose sight of character in a, in a pursuit of honoring God. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's such an ironic thing. Uh, but I'm a pastor. I love big numbers. I love counting seats. I love counting offering. I love all of those metrics that would make me feel success. Uh, but is that success in God's eyes? Um, isn't there more to that? And so as a driven Christian, it's, it's sadly easy to lose sight of Christ in our driven natures. Yeah, it absolutely is. You write that the wrong views can lead to wrong conclusions. Explain what that means, because I think that's really uh, essential for us to understand whether or not we're on the narrow way or we're walking that wide path. Yeah. And so 
I uh, I started a church and uh, and we started with just under six hundred people, and so right away we birthed a teenager with infant maturity, and uh, so much was going on early early you know year or so of our church that we could look at all the numbers and say hey we were a success. Um, then then COVID happens. We had a church split. We we can look at other things and. If I don't look at things the way God looks at them, uh, then there's going to be moments where I have the numbers, I have the offering, um, or I have the big house, or God gave me the bonus, and all of a sudden I'm striving after things that God never told me to strive after, and I start to feel like a success when God doesn't see uh, see success. Uh, and so it was just looking at character and things that matter to God and saying that's actually the measuring stick um, and to have the right view in mind. So. You write about steadfast love and um, that it's a conscious choice that we have to make. Uh, talk a little bit about the essential nature of steadfast love that can help keep us going the right way and to pursue the kind of success that God is calling us to. Yeah. So steadfast. So it's, this is the whole book is uh, I, I woke up one morning kind of down and out and uh, feeling like a failure. Um, and uh, and so God rocked me with uh, Proverbs 3, 3 through 4, which let not steadfast love, it, it starts with that. Uh, and so steadfast love being an ingredient of success, I, I really thought through that in steadfast love. There's two words there. I get love. Love can be done in a singular act. Uh, but steadfast love cannot be. You cannot prove to your spouse that you are steadfast in love with one single act. It is, a, it is day in and day out. It's continual acts of love that will prove you to be steadfast. And, it's, and it's a, for Christ, it's a generational love that has been there since the beginning of time. Uh, and so to that point, I cannot look at my wife and tell her I love her. Uh, because I gave her a diamond ring uh, 14 years ago. And if that's the only thing I can point to, then I have failed. Um, and I'm not a loving person. So mm-hmm. I think that's the word steadfast is the critical word there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought it was really profound when you wrote that you can't know what God wants from us, from me, if I don't know God. Um, how do we mm-hmm. get to know God so that we um, are certain that we understand what he wants? I mean, so that is, you know, some of the basic tenets of, uh, of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am, uh, I, I'm still a pastor and, uh, it is, it is ironic to me how many people, uh, love Jesus yet are confused by Jesus and don't read their Bibles. It's so simple, right? But as you talk to people that are mature in their faith, they literally open the word of God. Um, and so you want to know God, you want to know his heart, well, then read the book that he left for us, uh, or hang out with his people at church, um, or um, listen to music that talks about, um, you know, the loving nature of Christ. And so those are, those are just, you know, some basic things, but um, it's, so, it's so easy to not know God through simply being uh, ignorant or choosing to ignore, ignore the ignore the obvious ways in which God has made himself known. Mm-hmm. 
In the first part of the book, you write, as I mentioned, about steadfast love, uh, uh, mm-hmm. faithfulness, commitment, um, heart, and yep. you offer a biblical case study in each one of these areas. Kind of describe how the yep. book is structured to help us go deeper. Yeah. So I start, so that verse, Proverbs 3, 3 through 4, the, the first half of it lays out those, uh, those four ingredients. And so I looked at this as, uh, Four ingredients. Uh, I one of uh, one of my mentors told me once that I was high strung and needed a hobby, um, and so I, I took up baking uh, because I couldn't use my cell phone while I was baking, um, and I make killer chocolate chip mint brownie cookies. Um, and so uh, I just saw this whole verse unpack itself. Like, hey, there are four ingredients. You put it into a blender, you put it into the oven, and then you expect certain things to come out. So. If I put carrots into the blender, I'm kind of expecting a carrot cake, not chocolate chip cookies. Uh, And so the way it's broken down is so I I break out steadfast love, the ingredient. I explain it from God's perspective. I give uh, seven different marks of somebody that would be crushing it in those four areas. Uh, And then I conclude those chapters with how Jesus embodied uh, this uh, this characteristic. Uh, And then the biblical case study is looking at uh, somebody or a piece of scripture that talks about uh, in more in depth uh, this, uh, this ingredient. And so, uh, like we looked at Hosea and how the people of Israel were saying, hey, God, like, we're in trouble. Um, we, uh, we're going to sacrifice. We're going to wait it out. And God's like, no, I want your steadfast love. I don't want you just to prove it once in one time. I want, I want it for all. Um, and we do the same thing for... Uh, what the results are, because in that verse it says, so that you may find favor and good success with God and man. Uh, and so we give, a, we give a biblical case study for what favor is, what success with God is, and what success with, uh, with man is, and then conclude it with um, some, some words on success and favor, since that is so um, uh, misunderstood in our, in our yeah. Christian culture. Yeah. We're talking with uh, Pastor Jason Koash. He is the author of A Recipe for Biblical Success. We'll continue our conversation in a moment, but I need to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with uh, Jason Koash. He is the... Um, uh, he launched, I should say, Wellspring Church in Toms River, New Jersey. He serves as lead pastor there. He's also a part-time missionary in Converge, Brazil, where he helps serve their church planting efforts. We're talking about his book, A Recipe for Biblical Success, uh, which is a great read to help us distinguish between uh, success in our culture today and success according to God's Word. We talked a little bit about um, the the... Four major subjects that you cover, steadfast love, faithfulness, commitment, and heart. In the area of faithfulness, what's the link between struggling with faithfulness and struggling with forgetfulness? Yeah, yeah. The uh, If there ever was a case study on that one, it's the nation of Israel. And yeah. uh, that that is one of the things that, uh, through studying for the book and um, writing the book, it is so important to put markers in your life that will help you remember um, the faithfulness of God. Um, and so uh, Israel constantly was commanded to do things like Karen's and uh, like take things out of the water when after uh, before the, the, the seas or the river went back to where it was. 
Um, and so it is so important, you know, teach, teach the generations all that God had done so that they will be faithful. And um, Israel would forget my, my favorite, my favorite one about forgetting is when Israel was getting the, the 10 commandments, um, they had forgotten um, God's nature. I think we're experiencing some technical difficulties. Are you there? Okay, apparently we have been disconnected. We've been talking with Pastor Jason Koash. He's the author of A Recipe for Biblical Success, in which he um, talks about the difference between what the world embraces and what God defines as biblical success. Steadfast love, faithfulness, commitment, and heart are four of the major subjects that he covers But in part two of the book, he also talks about the results of biblical success and concludes the book by listing two simple priorities that we ought to embrace. We're trying to get him back on the phone. Uh, The book, by the way, is uh, published by Karis and is available uh, where books are sold. We have Pastor um, Koash back. Okay, there he is. All right. I'm not sure what happened, but uh, I'm glad to have you back. I apologize. Um, uh, I'm uh, yeah. So my uh, I was talking about Egypt and uh, and the Israelites and just how when they were getting the Ten Commandments, they forgot about their God and then took the gold that God gave them and made an idol. Um, and so it's a, just stressing the importance of remembering God's God's faithfulness to us to drive our faithfulness towards Him. So. What are some of the specific marks of and characteristics of faithful people? Faithful is, is kind of, it has a similar characteristic to, uh, to that of steadfast, steadfast people. It is that, uh, it is that consistency, um, day in and day out, similar to steadfast. You cannot prove that you are faithful, uh, over, <laughs> overnight. Um, you need to do it day in, uh, and day out. Uh, and so some of the things that we look at as marks, um, whenever I, I put in those marks in those chapters, I have a group of really faithful Christians that are a part of my church and just in my life. Uh, and so I would text them uh, when writing these chapters and say, hey, if, if you think of somebody that's a super faithful Christian, um, what do you expect to see in their lives? Uh, and so things like faithful and little. If you are a faithful person, you're not going to be faithful just with a huge crowd. Um, you're going to be faithful with the individuals. Um, and so that's uh, that's a pretty a pretty obvious one that's listed throughout scripture. But things like stewardship, uh, one of the marks I said also in that one um, is uh, that someone who's a faithful Christian probably welcomes intrusion into their lives. Uh, that they are willing to let people in and willing to let people talk to them and point things out. Uh, and so uh, that is I I. Sp- kind of wrote that speaking a little bit into culture mm-hmm. where if I want to be a faithful person, uh, I can be all about my social media. Um, I can be all about those things. And ironically, I want, I want to go viral. Um, but really faithful people, um, they want to go viral for the right reasons and not, uh, not just because they become a headline for all the wrong reasons. And so just the point of, I don't want to live, I don't want to be like culture where I'm trying to go viral, but yet I also want to be communicating. That's none of your business. That's none of your business. That's none of your business. I want some people in my life that, yeah, it is their business and they can call me out. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
You also write about commitment and suggest it's about a matter of priorities, um, which in a a culture like ours where we're driven by feelings, um, talk a bit about commitment and uh, how priorities can help us to, first of all, determine whether or not we are living a committed life that's pleasing to God or if we have our priorities in the wrong order. Yeah, uh, I I lead an organization and priorities are much of what um, is a big part of it. There are, you know, so using the organization thing, it's true of the Christian life. There are certain things that are true of all Christians. Uh, There are certain things that are true of all churches. Um, But then God has called certain Christians to prioritize other things. Um, I prioritize a church in New Jersey. Um, You're not called to do that. And that's a good thing. You're called to be a radio host. Um, and so when we when we have our priorities in order, we're we're sensing God out. We know His what He's called us and how we're unique. Um, and so uh, in my life, my family has written up a family mission statement. We have uh, five, I think it's five family values, uh, and it's one of our values is fitness, and it's why we we play sports and try to shine for Jesus while we're on a sports field. Um, and um, it also means that there's certain things that we say no to. And so priorities just help us to know what God is calling us to commit to um, beyond the the basics of the Christian faith, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. The other subject that you uh, cover thoroughly is the subject of heart. And you make reference to yeah. King David. He was called a man after God's own heart. And while he was a flawed man in many ways, what made him special to God? And what can we learn from his life uh, that, you know, as we want to honor him. So one of the things that stood out to me, I've always loved David. Uh, when I got in a lot of trouble in high school, my, uh, my mom made me read uh, Chuck Swindoll's book on David um, <laughs> to, to help me rebound. Um, and, uh, and so uh, always, always have loved David. David was a guy that could, uh, kill people in the morning and play the harp in the afternoon. You know, like he, he was an interesting dude. Uh, what I love about him, yes, he's a man after God's own heart. Uh, I couldn't think of, and I still ponder this, I can't think of a, a repeated sin in David's life. Um, he did some really stupid things, uh, but when he owned it, he owned it. And um, like even his affair with Bathsheba, it's later in his life where he's on his deathbed, um, where he has a maidservant waiting on him, and the way he postures himself in the maidservant shows that, like, man, he's learned something, and he doesn't mm-hmm. want to even flirt with temptation, if you will. Um, and so um, I think, yeah, it's owning, it's owning our stuff as flawed humans, and then if, we're, if we are um, broken and contrite, we strive never to repeat it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's so much more in the book that I wish we had time to talk about. Again, it's titled Mm -hmm. A Recipe for Biblical Success. I would recommend it. And I thank you for writing it and challenging us Mm -hmm. uh, to consider what the scriptures have to say about success so that we can measure where we stand and make the appropriate adjustments. Pastor Koash, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, on Tuesday, April 18th, In Touch Ministries announced the beloved pastor 
Charles Frazier Stanley, had passed away at about 7.30 a.m. that morning at age 90. He was known to audiences around the world through his wide-reaching TV and radio broadcasts. He modeled his 65 years of ministry after the Apostle Paul's message in Acts 20, 24. Life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about God's mighty kindness and love. And by the way, you can listen to uh, In Touch with Charles Stanley right here at KPDQ on our sister station, True Talk 800, every afternoon at 3.30 p.m. But Dr. Charles Stanley was the senior pastor of First Baptist Church Atlanta for more than 50 years. He was also the founder of In Touch Ministries and a New York Times bestselling author who wrote more than 70 books, encouraging people to seek Jesus as their Savior and know him as their wise and loving Lord. Charles Frazier Stanley was born in September of 1932 in the small town of Dry Fork, Virginia. He was the only child of Charlie and Rebecca Stanley. Charles came into the world during a time when the entire nation felt the grip of the Great Depression. And to make matters worth Worse, rather, just nine months later, his father, Charlie, died at the young age of 29. However, Charles refused to let the Great Depression or the difficulties of his life to define him. Through the excellent counsel and example of his mother, who was a follower of Jesus, Rebecca, he learned to trust God and obey his word wholeheartedly. At the age of 14, Dr. Stanley received a clear call to the ministry, and like his father and grandfather before him, he took up the mantle to preach the gospel to whomever would listen. Dr. Stanley received his Bachelor's of Arts degree from the University of Richmond in 1956, the year I was born. That same year, on August 19th, Dr. Stanley was ordained to the ministry at Moffat Memorial Baptist Church in Danville, Virginia. From there, he pursued his Bachelor of Divinity degree from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He later earned his Master's and Doctorate degrees in theology from Luther Rice Seminary. No relation, by the way. Dr. Stanley began pastoring in 1957 at Fruitland Baptist Church in North Carolina, where he also taught homiletics, preaching, and evangelism at the Fruitland Bible Institute. He went on to serve as pastor of First Baptist Church in Fairborn, Ohio in 1959, First Baptist Church of Miami, Florida in 1960 where he also founded the George Mueller uh, Christian School in 1966, the First Baptist Church of um, Barlow, Florida in 1968. October 1st of 1971, Dr. Stanley became senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Atlanta, Georgia, where he served until his home going. In 1972, he launched a half-hour program called The Chapel Hour on Atlanta stations WXIA-TV 11 and WANX 46. Looking for a practical Bible teaching program, the Christian Broadcasting Network contacted Dr. Stanley in 1978 to request that the program be included in its venture, a satellite distribution network to cable systems. Well, that broadcast grew from 16,000 local Atlanta viewers to a nationwide audience in one week. By 1982, In Touch Ministries was incorporated and began radio syndication. At its height, the In Touch with Dr. Stanley program uh, reached almost every major market in the United States, broadcasting to more than 115 million households domestically with the message of Christ and his sufficiently, sufficiency for life's demands. Dr. Stanley was inducted into the National Religious Broadcasters, or NRB, Hall of Fame in 1988, and also served two terms as president of the Southern Baptist Convention from 84 to 86. 
However, the turning point for Dr. Stanley's ministry came in August of 1989 when he spoke in Kansas City, Missouri for an ITM rally. He returned to his hotel room to seek God's guidance on a matter, and as he prayed, his mind kept returning to Psalm 67, 2. Send us around the world with the news of your saving power and your eternal plan for all mankind. Dr. Stanley says, when I was done praying, I got up and looked out the large window at the Coliseum where the rally was being held. Right next to it was a rooftop covered with satellite dishes and broadcast antennas. In that moment, God said to me, that's the way I'm going to do it. That is how I will use you to send the gospel around the world. End quote. Well, from that point on, Dr. Stanley tirelessly sought out and employed innovative technologies to send the message of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. At the time of his passing, the In Touch program was being broadcast on more than 4,000 television, radio and satellite networks and stations worldwide. And his sermons had been translated into 127 heart languages. Throughout his life and ministry, Dr. Stanley demonstrated an intimate awareness of people's needs and provided Christ-centered, biblically-based principles for everyday life. His motivation was best represented by the truth found in Acts twenty twenty four: Life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. Hmm. The work of telling others the good news about God's mighty kindness and love. Well, Dr. Stanley always understood that it wasn't by one's strength or talent that people would find hope in salvation, but in Christ working through willing, obedient vessels— And he was one. He said, it is the word of God and the work of God that changes people's lives. Certainly, the Lord worked powerfully through the obedient, submitted life of Dr. Charles Stanley. He was a godly example. He offered biblical teaching and a devotion to the gospel. And by the way, if you'd like to learn more, you can find a memorial for Dr. Stanley at charlesstanley.com. And that's Stanley with an E, charlesstanley.com. Uh, that is put together by In Touch Ministries. This is always a a time when someone who has had a significant impact on uh, the Christian faith as it's proclaimed in our age, when they pass away and leave that tremendous void, which in earnest is never really a void because God is always calling men and women to serve him faithfully in proclaiming the gospel. But it is a reminder that for all of us, until the Lord comes and some who are alive will be caught up with him in the air, that all of us will face that moment in which this life comes to an end and we will see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. We all want to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And while we might say it of one another as we observe faithfulness in ministry, it is only his voice that declares knowing full well the whole of our Christian walk whether or not that applies to us. And I so desperately long to hear those words from Jesus Christ. And just like uh, Charles Stanley uh, made quite clear, he recognized that it wasn't by his strength, it wasn't by his power that any of this was going to be accomplished. He recognized that it was the word of God, it was the work of God that changes people's lives. And that's true for those who are called to proclaim the gospel and those who receive the gospel and respond in faith that it is ultimately his work. I want to cooperate. I want to listen. I want to be available. I want to set aside fear and apprehension and walk in faithfulness, as did Charles Stanley and so many others. At the end of my life, I hope even a small fraction of what's said of him in terms of his faithfulness to the Lord Jesus can be said of me. And that in and of itself will be the work of the Holy Spirit because it is him working in and through any of us who have any impact uh, for good and for the kingdom. 
want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.